ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. So hello and welcome to another uh, Books of the Year podcast from your deep friends, close friends, <laughs> always at Books deep of the Year. Friends. So that if you turned up, we would buy you a burger. We would, yes. And, and that's rather uh, relevant because we're recording this in the evening at the studio where we normally record. And it gets a bit lively in the evening here. So apologies if uh, any of the music starts bleeding through. Yes, which which it might do. Mm. We've, we, we've, we have said that, you know, thumpy thump music isn't, really conducive to a fine podcast. Not really, not really, but hopefully... I mean, you, we might get a taster of it if Sebastian arrives during this introduction and then uh, yes. you will hear the thumpy, thumpy music then. And because he, he's, he's a kid, basically, so he might he might like all the thumpy Yes, thumpy <laughs> yes, that music. might be very much up apparently his Apparently he's, he's into Pink Floyd, so... Is he? Yes. Oh, right. So okay. maybe he's older than okay. he appears. Maybe yes. he's actually 65. Oh. Uh, so we're going to be talking to Sebastian Payne uh, about his uh, enormously enjoyable uh, romp through the end of Boris Johnson, the fall of Boris Johnson, the full story uh, with Sebastian Payne, always assuming that he turns up. Um, thanks very much for getting in touch since uh, since our last episode. Simon Hepworth, I've been listening to Ben McIntyre's books on Audible because we did uh, Ben McIntyre's Colditz book. Of course. Last time, and they're great. After listening to your latest pod with Ben, I realised he does a hugely different voice when narrating his books. Great episode, by the way. My guess is that he doesn't narrate his own books. Yes, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's, that's why it's it different. It doesn't sound anything like Ben. Uh, no, it's normally Martin Jarvis does just about always, every, always, every yes. audio book ever. Uh, Valerie on Twitter says, I found your Ben McIntyre interview fascinating. Yet another book for my to-be-read pile. And, uh, yes, that pile will be growing even more as we throw out these podcasts week after week after week, you're going to have to... Yes, actually, so Colditz, Prisoners of the Cast, is narrated by Ben McIntyre. So oh, it is? What do we know? SAS Rogue Heroes is read by Ben McIntyre. Ben McIntyre. So what we're saying to Simon Hepworth is, apologies, you were absolutely right. Clearly, He yes. clearly does affect a different voice when he's doing his, uh, his audiobooks. Um, Alexandra, via the email... Remind us of what the email address the is. The email mm. is booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Yes, there it is. <laughs> uh, Alex 
Alexandra slash Alex, I just spent the weekend reading Friends, Lovers and the Big Terrible Thing, Matthew Perry's new memoir. I never usually read memoirs or biographies, but as such a huge Friends fan, I felt I had to get this one and I'm so glad I did. I could not put it down. Have you read it? No. If not, have you read it? No, I've not. No, I so. strongly recommend you do. It's one of the best books I've read in a while. Funny, insightful, but also very sad. And I love the pod. <clears throat> it was uh, it was the book in the kind of memoirs and biography section which yes. stopped Bono's book from getting to number one. Oh, really? I mean, okay. it might have got to number one since, but it's clearly enormously popular. He's and very honest. I've, I've seen some uh, excerpts on it. He's very honest about uh, the struggles he was going through. Clearly. If Matthew Perry is listening, and I think he's probably a regular, yeah, yeah, downloaded the so. books of the year, we would love to get him on. Obviously, yes. that would be a... Fancy know, I mean, coming on, Matthew, he any doesn't, time? He doesn't need the promo. <laughs> Maybe not. Specifically. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email at booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, we're Books of the Year there, at Books of the Year. That's right, yeah. Uh, also on Instagram... Where all the cool kids hang out, you can find us at Pick Any Page. That's at Pick Any Page. I'm sort of, um, I'm sort of there with. Oh, are you? But not are you quite. on Instagram yet? Well, I'm, no? I'm sort of, I'm, I'm putting faltering steps. Oh, are intriguing. You? No, I'm not yet, but I think I should. I mean, obviously, I have to give all my data away yes. to Meta, which yes. I wasn't that Ugh. thrilled with particularly. But what can you do? What can you do? What can you do? I mean, do? the fact is I've got a nectar card, so they've got me anyway, you know. I'm, I, they know where I am. They know what I'm buying. So I may as well give Meta all of my data. We, we should have a conversation with Sebastian Payne about ID cards because we might as well, yeah. you know, <laughs> while, while he's here, we could just segue seamlessly into that. <laughs> yeah. We'll be bringing you our top episode next, which we recorded a couple of weeks ago, just before. In fact, the following day, he announced that he had a new job, so he couldn't actually tell us that he had a new job, but he's uh, going to be director of the think tank Onward, which obviously doesn't come up as part of this conversation because he didn't tell us. Anyway, here's our conversation. Now, Sebastian Payne is the award-winning Whitehall editor and columnist for the Financial Times. He's the author of the acclaimed book Broken Heartlands, which was the Times political book of the year for last year. Uh, Sebastian presents the Payne's Politics podcast, which I listen to every week. So it's the very least he could do is to appear on mine. <laughs> Slash hours, sorry, man. Um, shortlisted for News Podcast of the Year 2020 National Press Awards. The Fall of Boris Johnson is his second book. Hello, Sebastian, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Simon. How are you? Uh, well, we're, uh, I'm OK. I'm going to cough a little bit, you know, which, but don't be too distressed um, by that. I can see the box of um, tablets sitting there to your right yeah, hand. Yeah, well, let's mention VocalZone because they keep me going through many a programme at the moment. Are they sponsoring you at the moment? They certainly they should, should be. be. They <laughs> absolutely, absolutely certainly should, should be. be. And um, we've got, at the moment, I think it's uh, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates shaking all over, leaking through from outside. It's a great song. And many years ago in university, I was in a band that played this song and we placed it on the hook cover and I was the bass player. And it's a very easy bass line to play. It just mirrors exactly what the guitar is doing. Very good. Let's just let's just listen then. I have to pay royalties now. Aren't <laughs> it wasn't thirty seconds, and PRS will be fine. There you go, oh, wow. fine. There's, There's someone who stuff. does his own podcast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, Sebastian, it's very nice to have you on our pod. The fall of Boris Johnson, the full story. 
gripping Andrew Marr. Well, describe the cover then, Matt. Just uh, describe yes. the cover that we're looking at. Well, it's a very simple cover. It's uh, half of Boris Johnson's face. Uh, he doesn't <laughs> look happy. Doesn't. Uh, and uh, I know his hair is, is slightly tousled, so who'd have thought? Uh, and then picked out in white, we've got uh, the fall of Boris Johnson, the full story in gold, Sebastian Payne's uh, name right at the bottom, and Andrew Marr calls it gripping. Yes. And I would tell you that cover, there were six different versions of it, which was exactly where we placed Boris's face on the cover and how much of his left eye you see there. And that is version number four we went through, okay. where the cover goes down the middle. So it's down the middle of his nose, but okay. not his mouth. And you see half in, half out, just like he was during his premiership. Very good. Oh, nicely oh, done. He looks as though he's good. about to nut you. That's what he. <laughs> That's how he was feeling by the end. I think so. Certainly, if he gets to the end of your book, he, he'll be. Think I'm going to have a word with that, Sebastian Payne. Anyway, can you just before we get into the contents of the book? So, Broken Heartlands was a huge hit and very successful. So, you must have thought I quite like this. I mean, I know I do a lot of writing because I'm at the FT and I'm writing all the time. But you had a very successful book, as I mentioned, and it, it won all the awards. Did you, whilst you were doing that, did you think, um, what's my next book? going to be where am I going to go next with this I think every author has that that you've always got ideas percolating which means of course I've got ideas percolating for the third book as well but what happened with the fall of Boris Johnson was we had the paperback of Broken Heartlands came out last summer and my great publishers Pan McMillan put a dinner on for me just around the corner from where we're recording at the German Gymnasium near King's Cross in London and we were sitting at this dinner and the head of um, publishing said so what's your next book going to be you should do a book on Boris Johnson and I said, no, 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 he's not going to go anywhere. There's not much to write. He'll be here to the next election and we'll probably win it. And he was gone two days later. So that shows what great foresight I I'm have. Glad, I'm glad we got you on. Anyway, <laughs> Sebastian Payne, thanks very much for coming in. Anyway, so, And so, so essentially at this yeah. point... It was a story that told itself. And he then went a couple of days later from Downing Street and the publishers came back and said, I know we were joking, but would you actually like to chart this? And as you mentioned, Simon, I do all this stuff at the Financial Times where I've been for seven years now and I've been four years as Whitehall editor. And so I had a lot of contemporaneous reporting that was going on and charting the downfall. But what was quite enticing about this story was I thought, well, hang on a minute. We can actually pull this into a much bigger story of a book in terms of this nine-month narrative that starts in October 2021 and ends in the summer of 2022 and all the events that led to his going. So I was able to pull together stuff I'd done at the time, but then going back to the sources, back to all the people I was speaking to day to day and saying, well, in fact, is there something a bit more we can uh, we can get out of this? And I did 40 hours of interviews in two weeks before I disappeared off to Devon to write the book in a month. And um, I got a lot more detail, a lot more information, and people were amazingly candid about what happened in those kind of final crazy few days that brought down um, his premiership. When it says the full story, <clears throat> I think when, I mean, it's a fantastically uh, readable book. It's so many insights, so many gripping parts. You think, I, I think I know this story, but I certainly, you know, I certainly didn't know that. If we, if we start off at the beginning of the book, and again, before we get into any of the detail, and, and a lot of people listening will think, okay, I think I know the nuts and bolts of this story. I know that there is an Owen Patterson bit, there's a Partygate bit, and there's a Chris Pincher bit. The and three Ps. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Very, very useful. The three pillars. So you've got a three-act play, but then there are other things, which is like COVID in Ukraine and uh, and so on. But what was what surprised you as you were unpicking this story and going back into a story that you had been a part of for uh, for so long? What surprised you about the facts and the stories that you 
that you've got here? I think the thing was that throughout the reporting at that time, we kept feeling, fe um, reporting and feeling as the media, Boris Johnson was never going to go because he survived so many scandals and kept going and going and going and took so much fire that normal politicians could not survive. We underestimated essentially how Boris lost control of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, that he's got all these MPs, many of whom were only elected because of him in the 2019 election, but his relationship with them broke with the first P, Owen Patterson. It got far worse with Partygate, the second P, and then the third P, Chris Pincher, who was the Deputy Chief Whip who had these um, sexual harassment allegations. That sort of was the straw that finally broke it. But the thing that surprised me the most is that when you're standing back and writing this in August 2022 when I did it, it was obvious. It was obvious all these things were going wrong. He'd run out of road. And when you read it, you're like, well, how didn't you see that coming? Because no one really saw this coming. And I think we'd sort of thought of Boris Johnson as this Teflon politician. There's a quote at the very end of the book. And this person has known Boris for about 30 years. I can't stress how well this person knows Boris Johnson. And we were talking in a meeting about the Teflon politician, which is what the media often described Boris Johnson as. And this person said to me, I'll tell you what he is. He's not a Teflon politician. He's a Teflon frying pan. You buy it. It's new and shiny. It's got a Teflon coating. But then bit by bit, the coating comes off. Then you use a metal spatula and you try and cook an omelette and the omelette sticks to the side. And bit by bit, that coating goes. Then what do you do? You bin it. Now, I hope my friends talk about me in better terms than that. But actually, what the metaphor that person was getting to is we all assumed Boris was always going to stick around. He was always going to survive the scandals. And then when the Chris Pincher thing happened, the final P, we thought, well, how's it come to this? But actually, the story of the book for me is it was happening gradually and we never realised it. What comes across as well, um, though, Sebastian, is his reaction to and the way he deals with uh, the challenges he faces. So I would argue there is a marked difference between how he dealt with the certainly the early part of um, the COVID pandemic, where um, it's clear now that there were uh, COBRA meetings that he wasn't attending. Um, Partygate clearly wasn't taken seriously to begin with at all uh, and only when it really started to roll when the when the video of Allegra Strassen comes out um, then people start to, to grasp it whereas he, he was absolutely ahead of the pack as far as Ukraine was concerned what is it what is it about those three examples I've given that Ukraine he was able to get his head around straight away but the other two he was distracted indifferent or just missed it completely it's a fascinating thing and I wrote the Ukraine chapter with this in mind because in 10 15 years when the the more longer term history of Boris Johnson is written people will look back and the Ukraine thing will stand out a lot that one of my colleagues at the Financial Times has just been in Kiev to interview and um, Vladimir Zelensky who's the FT's person of the person of the year and they said you go around Ukraine and they cannot understand why we got rid of Boris Johnson there are bars in Ukraine where everyone wears blonde wigs and there are rolling back to back speeches of Boris Johnson now some listeners will say, I can't think of anything worse, actually. But the fact is that in Ukraine, they see him as almost a sort of godlike saviour. This guy who was ahead of the pack, who got the weapons, who got the support for the Russian invasion. Why did Boris Johnson leech on this or hop on this, I should say, so quickly? I think, first of all, 
he saw the zeitgeist. He saw this was a big fight that was going to be a defining issue. And he's got this gut instinct, whether it was on Brexit or on many other issues throughout his career, where he just gets on to stuff before other people. Second of all, it speaks to a part of his brain that's not about Westminster politics and the parliamentary party and nitty gritty policy. It's about much bigger things, you know, maps, battalions, towns, villages. And then the third thing, of course, is he obviously is obsessed with Winston Churchill yeah, and could yeah. see that this was a fight he could draw parallels with. And I think the, the relationship between Vladimir Zelensky and Boris Johnson, which I try and look at in the book by speaking to people who've been in the room with the pair of them, both of them could see they were useful to each other. For Boris Johnson, Zelensky was an issue that was away from Partygate, away from COVID, away from the issues at home. For Zelensky, Boris Johnson was a source of money, and weapons. So it was this sort of symbiotic thing that worked very well for the pair of them. But ultimately, it was just his gut instinct about a core that would matter and a core that he did get right. And I think when the history, the longer term histories are written, that will be a really big part of it. It's possible to hold those views together, isn't it? To say this was, I was going to say his finest hour, which I think is a phrase that you do mm -hmm. use in the book. But mm -hmm. to, the, the call he made on Ukraine was right the call that he made on Owen Patterson and party game Chris Pincher were catastrophic. Hugely. And there's, I think when you stack it all up, um, the calls, particularly in the last nine months the book covers, were nearly all wrong. And that's why he's no longer prime minister, you know, but he did get one big call right. The other big call he did get right was last Christmas, pretty much this time last year that we're sitting recording, we were facing Omicron and everyone was thinking we've had two Christmases ruined. Is it going to be a third Christmas ruined? And Boris Johnson pushed back against um, a lot of the opinion that said we need to have another lockdown. And that was a risk. And he pushed pushed the system to get the vaccine booster program, get boosted now, if you remember those slogans. And even during the first phase of COVID vaccinations, we were only hitting 400,000, 500,000 jabs a day. Every single day in the run up to Christmas last year, we got a million jabs. And that was because Boris Johnson did push the system and say, we have to do this. If we don't do this, we're not going to have Christmas. And that kind of effort is astounding that he did that. And the question that I actually don't know the answer to, having lived in this kind of mad world for the past couple of months of my life, is why didn't that transpire to other parts of government? Why didn't he do that with the NHS, buses, trains, the economy, house building, all these other problems we face as a country. And I just think there was something about his character that he couldn't apply himself the same way when his back wasn't really up against the wall. And I think that was the thing with Ukraine. That was the thing with boosters. Do you think then that the people, we're taking the story as a whole here, but do you think then the people who always thought, were his long-term critics and always thought it would come down crashing around his is were were, the, were those character flaws they and they pointed they pointed to the fact that he's chaotic they pointed to the fact he's an inveterate liar and it is not possible to sustain the top job if those flaws continue to be there and the people who made that criticism were right weren't they well, I think by his own terms, Boris Johnson told me in my first book, Broken Heartlands, that he wants to do a decade in office and wants to be there longer than Tony Blair, longer than Margaret Thatcher. And when we spoke in April 2021, just after the Hartlepool by-election where the Tories won Hartlepool for the first time ever, that seemed plausible. You know, that seemed that this guy was riding high they were, and the Tories were way ahead of Labour. Keir Starmer seemed to be nowhere. Um, but then, you know, just a year later, that was all gone. So by his own terms, he did not want it to end this way. He didn't want to end, um, you know, after just three years in office. The issue about 
his character flaws. The thing that I think is the most fascinating thing about Boris Johnson is his character judgment about who he puts trust in. And I know it's an old kind of trope to say, you know, you judge someone by the people they have around him. But I think when Boris Johnson's case, this is very much true that he went through three Downing Street operations, the people around him who were sort of supporting his government, offering advice. They were never good enough in my view. They were not people you'd want running a major G7 country during a pandemic, during a war, during all the other challenges that we face. And he kept going through aid and they were just never quite right in my view. And the same was true of the cabinet, that if you look at Rishi Sunak's cabinet, on the basis, I would say it's stronger than where Boris Johnson's last cabinet were. You People will still have their criticisms of that cabinet in it. But Boris Johnson never quite had the right people there. If you take Jeremy Hunt, who's currently the Chancellor of the UK, people could agree he's a very experienced minister. You may not like what he's done. You may well disagree with him. But the fact he sat on the back benches for the whole of Boris's time in office and he never tried to give him a senior job speaks to something about him that he would not bring Jeremy Hunt back because he ran against him in 2019. He did not bring people back if he felt they had somehow slighted him. And for me, that is a big flaw. And that plays into why I ended in this kind of crash landing that I concluded in the book was, was probably always going to end this way. I, I want to talk to you, Sebastian, about anonymous sources. Books uh, like yours are obviously going to be informed by anonymous sources. And I think as a reader, you know the price you pay for being taken into rooms that you wouldn't be taken into normally is that the person who is relaying that information wants to remain anonymous because otherwise, clearly, they're going to be opening themselves up for uh, a lot of a lot of blowback. I, I do want to talk to you, though, about a couple of things that, that come out in the book that are obviously attributed to um, to anonymous sources. One of them is where um, uh, one of them says that Sue Gray was just loving the attention, which feels patently untrue, given even in your book you say that, you know, we don't even know how old Sue Gray is. We know so little about her. And the fact that she's not given interviews since this, when I'm... Um, my guess is she has been absolutely deluged with re- with requests for for interviews, and always she, will be, and, and clearly always will be. Another another one was that Boris never really liked parties anyway. You know, like, well, he went to enough of them. So I I wonder what duty do you have when you're talking to anonymous sources? What duty do you have to rebut what they say when it's quite clearly something that is malicious? And when I say malicious, I mean they're saying something they know to be false because they want to be able to create uh, uh, an impression about Sue Gray or an impression about Boris. So anonymous sourcing is not something political journalists like to clarify that, you know, a lot of people think that it's an easy thing to rest on. The fact is that a lot of this book is based on that, partly because of the time frame it was written, but also partly because I felt it was more useful for the reader to tell you what was actually going on than if I just relied on what was public reports. And in that case, it wouldn't have probably gone that much further than where we were um, when the the events actually happened. On those two instances, the one about Sue Gray, that particular quote came from someone very senior in Boris Johnson's operation. And it was someone so senior that I felt it was worth putting into the book because this was not just some sort of junior aide who felt it was just passing off a common. It was someone who was germane to his operation. And the fact 
that they felt that dictated their response, which, as we talk about later in the book, when they tried to actually kill off the Suge report in one of the most sort of cack-handed plots that I've ever seen. Um, the second thing about Boris not liking parties, um, I can actually attest from personal experience that is actually true, that once a year Downing Street does drinks parties for political journalists, and I have been them under every prime minister <laughs> except Liz Truss. She didn't quite get around no. to having a drinks party, and, well, that's maybe for the best for everyone involved. Yes, but exactly. um, Boris Johnson would turn up there, would absolutely hate it, would absolutely hate it, and would try and get out as soon as possible. He's not someone who likes being in a crowd of people. His ideal evening is a large vat of red wine, a big book, or spending time with his family. So I think that, in that second quote, is actually true. Now, in terms of the wider thing about how you deal with this as a political journalist... Essentially, you've got to trust the author here. You've got to, and, and I understand people will and they won't. <laughs> My view is you've got to say to me, look, the fact is I'm taking you into this world. The person who's telling me this, I think is relevant enough to put this not just in a newspaper article or a tweet, but in an actual book. And that this is relevant to the characters involved. Now, with the point about Sue Gray, that was also reflected by many people around Sue Gray who said um, she hated it and she wanted it over. She didn't want to do this job, but people in Downing Street certainly felt that. And the thing about Boris and parties, um, I mean, you could go on the street and try and find any number of people who would say, of course he loved parties. You said he went to lots of them. If you speak to anyone who's known Boris Johnson for a decent period of time, they will all tell you he hates parties. David Aronovich in The Times, when he was reviewing your book, said he's worked out, he thinks that Michael Gove was certainly one of the one of your anonymous sources, you're smiling, uh, <laughs> No comment. Um, and, but, but having, and then <laughs> having read that and finished your book, there is a there is a scene where um, we go in. So Gove is so this is end of days. Gove is going to Johnson to say it's time for you do have to step you do have to step down. You make it very clear there are only two people in the room. So either Michael Gove and his people spoke, or anyway, this is just what well, we're all just piecing well, I would this point, together. I would point, <clears throat> I would point out that in that uh, exchange, which is one of the most interesting of the book, I am. Um, I said, according to people with knowledge of the conversation. Now, yes, do. There, I do say that. And there were only two people in that room. Um, but I did not say that those two people had not given accounts to other people. So what does that mean? It means you can use your imagination as to what happened after that meeting and whether that the contents of that conversation yeah. went more widely or whether it did not. So when, when there's a documentary on this in, in about 10 years' time, more material will obviously bubble to the surface, one imagines. The funny thing about all this is, when I was studying journalism at City University, I remember one of the people teaching me how to do this said, journalism is like going down a dark corridor with open razor blades. And I think political journalism can often be like that. You have no idea where you're going. You don't actually know what the end is. You don't even know where the corridor is or how long it is. And day to day, all you're doing is trying to snatch stuff that in a typical day for a newspaper, you have a couple of hours to try and ring around people and if you take that instance of that meeting and that meeting was reported that day not the contents of the meeting and it's sort of everything sort of dribbles through the system eventually until somebody who a journalist knows who will tell them what happened when I did this book it was a couple of weeks away from the events people were more willing to talk right. when you get months away and even years away people are even more willing to talk and when it comes to that documentary who knows maybe even Boris Johnson or Michael Gove might stand up and say whether that account was accurate which of course by the way it wasn't entirely excellent thank you <laughs> uh, uh th this th there's another kind of um uh a series of stories which you which you link in the book which essentially 
come under the heading of Boris Johnson as a constitutional vandal, it seems to me, that he was, he was prepared to bully or lie his way to try and get either Parliament prorogued or get the... There's a sequence that I want you to explain about where you talk about someone saying to you that if, if Boris had wanted to call an election, that the Queen would not have picked up the phone. Can you just explain the context? And even if you don't tell us who it was, this probably wasn't Michael Gove, uh, <laughs> who... You know, how you came upon that scenario and the, and the significance of it in the downfall of Boris. So we come to the last 24 hours of Boris Johnson's time within Downing Street. And by this point, you'd, he'd lost Sajid Javid, his health secretary, Rishi Sunak, his chancellor. And essentially, the ship was leaking in every direction. Ministers were jumping over the side. Water was coming in. And it was really just a sort of a countdown to the whole thing was submerged. But like all political leaders, I think Boris Johnson did try to fight on to the bitter end. And readers can take their view on whether he was going to push it too far or whether he didn't ultimately. But it comes to this very final evening, the night before he announced he was quitting as Prime Minister. I think he'd lost about 40 ministers by this point, which was an unprecedented amount. And it was almost farcical. I remember Sky News actually had a ticker, and it was sort of weather, pound, how many ministers have been lost mm. in Boris Johnson's government. And it was up to 40 at this point. And of course, you do get to a point where you, you can't find any more Tory MPs willing to serve within the government. So at this point, um, you've got, you know, it, it, it's been made clear to Boris by Graham Brady, who's the very portly grand chair of the 1922 committee, which is a kind of trade union for Tory mm. MPs, and said, look, you're not going to get through this. If you don't quit, we're going to remove you. It's up to you now. You can either fight this or you can or you can just stand down. And at that point, he keeps fighting. So he spends that evening speaking to cabinet ministers and they're all waiting to see him in Downing Street um, drinking cold tea and waiting to get their moment with the prime minister. And this is exactly what happened for Margaret Thatcher, by the way, in the very end that all these ministers back then, it was Ken Clark was one of them. Um, Douglas Heard, the foreign secretary, and they all sat in Downing Street and she saw them one by one. And she said, should I go on? And in every instance, um, Mrs. Thatcher said to them, uh, um, I'm going to keep going on. They said, well, we'll support you, but you're not going to win. In this instance, Boris Johnson actually turned most of them around, which you can either put down to Boris's rhetorical skills or the moral fibre of the ministers who went to see him. I'll let you decide which that was. But at the very end of this moment, he's seen all the ministers. They've all said it's over, but he's still going to fight. And you've got some people around Boris Johnson who are saying, you don't need this. You've got a mandate from the British people. 14 million people voted for you in the 2019 election. You should go to the country. Forget these supine MPs. They don't know what it's about. The electorate are the ones who that. Now, of course, we're not a presidential system. It doesn't work like that. Let's dismiss that for a moment. And they're trying to pump him up, saying you should call a general election. Now, what they didn't know and what Boris Johnson didn't know at this point was that for months in the run up to this moment, people in the deepest, darkest corners of the British state were aware this might happen. People. People. Uh, and these, the, and this was what I've called in the book the magic triangle, which is three very key people who hold very influential positions, who had had private conversations to make sure this could not happen. And their aim was to protect the Queen. Deep state. The deep. It was the deepest of deep states. So you have got in this magic triangle, number one, Sir Graham Brady, who represents the Conservative Party, in i.e. telling this triangle which person can command a majority in the House of Commons. 
Number two is Sir Edward Young, who is the Queen's private secretary and deals with all of the Queen's constitutional and political matters. Number three is Simon Case, the cabinet secretary who represents the civil service, the Sir Humphrey of his day. And this magic triangle had communications for months in advance when they could see the wheels were coming off and they were aware Boris Johnson might do something like this. And by the way, they did this for Theresa May as well. They were aware that when Theresa May's wheels were coming off, she might try and do something like this. I think it was maybe a bit less likely in Mrs May's case. And their number one aim was to not embarrass the Queen. Because if the Prime Minister asks the Queen of the day, give me a general election, the Queen has to say yes. There's no way she could say no. Because if she said no... Then, ha then that's basically we're back to full constitutional monarchy where the Queen decides who's the Prime Minister and that, that's, not impossible. that's not possible. So what they did was to agree a framing of words that if Boris Johnson had said, I want to call an election, which he didn't, by the way, people were urging to, but he didn't, and that is very important. Their response would have been, I'm very sorry, Prime Minister, but the Queen can't come to the phone right now. She's watching, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. <laughs> and at that moment... That was when Boris Johnson would have known the Queen has lost faith in you. And at that point, either he would have gone or he would have been heaved out because it would have been made known to the Conservative Parliamentary Party that Buckingham Palace had lost confidence and you need to send us another Prime Minister. And what's so interesting about that is, number one, that uh, no one knew about this and it took a lot of reporting and time to figure out this. And it was, in, as with all things with reporting, you get a hint of it from someone, you think, that's interesting, I'm going to go and explore that. You call some more people, they have no idea what you're talking about, but then you pick up a bit more. It's a bit like breadcrumbs until you get there. But the second thing is that they, they were genuinely so worried about Boris Johnson doing this, they had to put in the framework to protect the Queen. But ultimately, Boris Johnson didn't do that. He made he was realised of his own fruition this would be a bad idea and could embarrass the monarchy. I just want to ask you about his in so his final speech uh, um, just outside uh, number ten, where he referred to um, Conservative MPs as the mob. When the mob moves, then you know that that's it. Uh, you, you've got that was go. the media as well, because don't forget, there's a lot of this where Boris Johnson blames the media for mm. this. So the mob was Conservative MPs egged on by the media. OK, but the, the Conservative MPs mm. allowed themselves perhaps to be to, to be egged on. Um, it reminded me of a part that's earlier in your book where a whipping operation failed. And it doesn't matter what the what the uh, whipping operation, which um, uh, what vote it was that they were trying to get Tory MPs to, to vote with the government on. But it failed even though they'd given concessions to these Conservative MPs, basically over a weekend, these Conservative MPs came back and said, nah, we've changed our mind and we're, we're not voting with you. And I'm going to put this as delicately as I can. What is it about Boris Johnson that these Conservative MPs of his own party thought, we can't trust what this guy is saying? Why don't they believe their own leader? It was the U-turns. I think that it's as simple and straightforward as that, that the worst possible thing you can have as an MP of any stripe, Labour or Conservative, is you're told to do something by your party chief, even though it's unpopular. You're going to get a load of rubbish in your post bag of people saying you're disgusting, I'm going to vote you out, and you're going to go and embarrass yourself in the media. And then 24 hours, 48 hours later, being told, actually, we've changed direction. You don't need to do that bad thing. And this happened time and time again. 
So you had it with the Owen Patterson thing. So when you've got this disgraced former environment secretary and he um, is going to get suspended from Parliament and Boris Johnson cooks up this ruse to save him and Conservative MPs are told to go out and defend Owen Patterson and then a couple of days later it's then scrapped. That really annoys them because they're saying, well, why did I just do that? I've just created myself all this hassle. I've really not enjoyed this and you've just dropped me in it as well. The same thing happened with Partygate. You know, that in the book, Sajid Javid, the, for the former health secretary, he felt that, that he was sent out to defend the Prime Minister and was said, you know, he went on breakfast TV and said, I have been categorically assured at the most senior levels of government that there were no parties and there were no rules broken. So if you're Sajid Javid, you go out and say that um, to BBC Breakfast and then there are parties. What do you feel like at that point? Why would you give that person the benefit of the doubt? And it was just a gradual thing and it happened time and time and time again. And I think the moment that it broke was the fine because at that point that was definitive, clear proof that COVID rules were broken. The Met Police have said that. Tory MPs are not going to doubt the Met Police. So at that moment you say, I'm fed up, I've had enough, I'm not going to give you the benefit anymore. Was there anything that you had to leave out? Lots of stuff I had to leave out, but there's a very good reason it was left out, and that was mostly for legal reasons, which is why I'm very sad to say I can't put mm. it on the podcast. But the one bit that was left out, of course, was the comeback that never was, and that was because it almost happened the day the book went to press. So October the 21st was I was down uh, in Devon um, having a very nice relaxing weekend. The book was finished, going off to press, having a nice beer at the Dartmouth Food Festival, very and nice. my phone flash flashes up and says, says Boris Johnson is going to run for Tory leader again. And that was when he flew back from the Caribbean, when he was going to have that second pop at it. And we had this big dilemma about what are we going to do if this happens? Because um, the book was written, it was gone. Publishing has quite long lead times. And so I desperately phoned up my editor at Pan Macmillan and said, what do you think? And, you know, we could have either scrapped the book, which, I mean, it was a lot of effort. And we could have delayed it. We would have missed the crucial Christmas market. And we came up with the final solution, which was to simply just reprint the covers and change the title to The Brief Fall of Boris Johnson. <laughs> but what we didn't get into the book was, you know, that comeback that never was. And I'm going to save that for the paperback. And I've already picked up some juicy nuggets about what happened, why he came back and why he didn't actually um, run for leader again. Because, you know, we could be sitting here and he could be prime minister again. Yeah. So he had the numbers. I don't believe he did. Interesting. He said that he did, and he said 102. Yeah, yeah. He didn't say 102 unique numbers. And Conservative MPs, you know, far be it from anyone to doubt what they might say in public versus what they do in private. But I do think that maybe some MPs had given their names to multiple leadership contenders. So he had 102 names. They were not 102 independent, unique, verified names. And by the way, even if he had 102, Rishi Sunak had about 200 at that point. Oh, right. So he would have been crushed by his former chancellor. Having got to the end of your book, Sebastian, it did feel as though it's, it's hard to imagine that he would get the top job again. No, Once all this stuff comes out and, and more in your paperback, and more with other articles and, you know, and other books, it's hard to imagine Conservative MPs going, more of that, please. I think that was actually what came to it. And the point that did make me smile that weekend in October when he was mulling another bid, um, Nadine Dorries, who's one of his most loyal supporters, she came out and said, this is going to be a different Boris. He's going to run the government differently and do things differently. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of a quote, which is actually in the book, which Boris Johnson said, I'm a 57-year-old man. I can't change. I have no intention of changing how I do things. So the man himself said, I'm not going to change because this is how I run things. 
I do think it's very difficult to see a route back for Boris. Not impossible at all, because, you know, he's basically broken every rule of British politics you could imagine. But, you know, people talk about Winston Churchill, who came back after leaving office, and Harold Wilson, who came back after leaving office. But there's one crucial difference. They both remained party leader. Howard Wilson was leader of the Labour Party while leader of the opposition, as was Winston Churchill when he was no longer prime minister. The caravans moved on pretty quickly. You know, we're on to our second prime minister since Boris Johnson left um, in, in September this year. And I think, think about the circumstances he would come back. So we're going to have a general election probably this time in two years is my bet. So towards the end of 2024, Rishi Sunak will almost certainly lead it. You know, there may be some attempt to remove him, but I think it's more likely than not. If he wins that, Boris Johnson's not coming back. If he loses that election, then um, it's going to be opposition. And is Boris Johnson going to spend five hard years in opposition no, no, dealing no, no, with no, Keir no, Starmer? No. Well, you've, you've put your view there. I think many, many would agree with that view. And at that point, things just move on. And I think, it, 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 I think for me, the fact he didn't run that weekend, I spoke to a very senior Conservative MP who said to me... Michael Gove. It was not Michael Gove. <laughs> no. Absolutely not commenting on any sources at all within this book. But um, when I spoke to a very senior Conservative MP about this, he said to me, if Boris doesn't get it now, that's it. He's never going to get it. And I can see their view on that. Sebastian Payne's book is The Fall of Boris Johnson, The Full Story. Uh, it's it's fascinating. It's a great read. Even at Christmas, it's a great read. E even if you're thinking, I don't want to hear the news, this will absorb you because it's it's like a uh, an ancien regime collapsing, uh, and it's terrific. Uh, Sebastian, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. There'll be more with Sebastian uh, in our Q and A, which will be with you uh, in a couple of days. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.